Today, everybody is talking about virtual reality. But I think, frankly, that virtual reality is a rather miserable idea. It simply means let us reproduce in an artificial digital medium our experience of reality. I think that a much more interesting notion, crucial to understand what goes on today, is the opposite. Not virtual reality, but the reality of the virtual. That is to say, reality, by this I mean efficacy, effectiveness, real effects produced, generated by something which does not yet fully exist, which is not yet fully actual. In what sense can we talk about this? Oh, in many, maybe even too many senses. At least in three senses, if we take as the starting point the well-known Lacanian triad of imaginary, symbolic and real. We have, to put it in simple terms, uh, imaginary virtual, symbolic virtual and real virtual. First, a little bit about the first two of them, less important, and then, of course, the big topic, the real. Uh, imaginary virtual, what it is? Isn't it clear if we look at our most common daily experience of ourselves and of others, that how, when we deal with another person, phenomenologically, that is to say, the way we immediately experience them, we erase, abstract from the image of the other person, our partner, uh, certain features which are simply too embarrassing to be kept in mind all the time. Like, I talk to you. Of course, rationally, I know you are defecating, you are sweating, not to mention other things, but quite literally, when I interact with you, this is not part of the image I have of you. So when I deal with you, I'm basically not dealing with the real you. I'm dealing with the virtual image of you. And this image has reality, in the sense that it nonetheless structures the way I am dealing with you. And again, this idealization is crucial. The negative proof, a wonderful one, would have been letters between uh, James Joyce and his wife Nora, where, as far as I know, they went very, very far, almost to the end, into accepting each other in the, the vulgar reality of bodies, like all the sounds, the bad smells, and so on. That was even part of their sexual interaction. It's incredible. I admire this in Joyce. So, okay, this would be the first elementary level. Imaginary virtual, in the sense of the virtual image which determines how we interact with other people. Virtual image in the sense of, although we interact with real people, we erase, we behave as if whole strata of the other person are not there. Second level, already a more complex one, symbolic virtual. Ooh, it's elementary. Let's think about an experience known well to all of us of experiencing authority. Let us say paternal authority. Isn't it clear that 
this authority in order to be operative, in order to be experienced precisely, that's the nice paradox, in order to be experienced as actual, effective authority, it has to remain virtual. Virtual in the sense of a threat. If authority is enacted too directly, it is paradoxically experienced as a sign of impotence. Concretely, father who truly is an authority doesn't have to beat you or to shout at you and so on. It's just this look, a threatening look, and you obey. If your father loses his nerves and slaps you, starts to shout and so on, it can be physically painful, but let's admit it, there is always an aspect of, of something ridiculous, impotent. There is something, something of a... Of a, of a, of a of a furious outburst of a, of a puppet, of a clown in it. Again, this is then one clear example of how symbolic authority, in order to be operative, that's the paradox I want to emphasize, has to remain virtual. So it's not just it is actual already as virtual. No, it's actual only as virtual. If it's fully actualized as a realized threat, father beats you, shouts at you, it's self-destructive. It undermines itself as authority. Another example of how the virtual dimension is operative at the symbolic level would have been beliefs. Are we aware to what extent our beliefs today are virtual? By virtual I mean, in this case, attributed to others, presupposed. They don't actually exist, they are virtual, in the sense that nobody really has to believe. We only have to presuppose another person to believe. Elementary example, which I'm almost uh, embarrassed to mention, if you are a father, a mother, small children, Christmas. Of course, if somebody asks you, do you really believe in Santa Claus Christmas, you would say no. I just pretend because of the children, it's uh, not to disappoint them. But then we know how the game goes on and on. If you ask the children, they say no, we just play that we are naive not to disappoint our parents and to make it sure that we get the presents and so on and so on. But it's not only with children, it's even with our political life, I'm tempted to claim. Now, in our so-called, wrongly so-called, I claim, because we believe more than ever, in our so-called cynical era, for example, I don't think anyone believes in democracy, but nonetheless, we want to maintain appearances. That is to say, there is some purely virtual entity whom we do not want to disappoint, who has to be kept innocent, ignorant, because of whom we have to pretend. So the paradox is that although nobody effectively believes, it is enough that everybody presupposes somebody, someone else to believe and the belief is actual. It structures reality. It functions. Again, the paradox is here then similar as the one of uh, authority. It's not only that a belief which is a virtual belief, not belief of an actual person, but always attributed 
to other, let's call it, along Lacanian lines, the subject supposed to believe. It's not only that a belief already as virtual, as merely presupposed, already is actual. I'm tempted to claim that many of our daily beliefs, in order to function socially as beliefs, have to remain virtual in this sense. Because if we believe too immediately, then I think it's again self-destructive for an ideology. We no longer appear normal subjects, we appear idiots. Like we all know how it is when we encounter somebody who takes too directly his or her religious beliefs or uh, political beliefs. There is something monstrous about somebody who directly identifies with it. It is as if he or she is no longer a real person. It is as if he or she turns into a kind of a puppet. So I hope now these two levels are relatively clear. The first two levels of virtuality, imaginary virtuality, symbolic virtuality. But now, of course, the true treasure is waiting for us, real virtuality. So, the real virtual, well, the problem here, the catch, of course, is the notion of the real. So, this may appear boring, but we have to go again through the triad, imaginary, symbolic, real. Because when Lacan defines this triad as the triad of a not, not, it means that they are literally interwoven in the sense that the entire triad is reflected into each of the three terms, which means, to put it bluntly, that there is, again, imaginary, real, symbolic, real, and real, real. What would be the imaginary real? Images, but images which are so strong, so traumatic, that they are real, too strong to be perceived, but still images. Simply think about incredible, breathtaking catastrophes, think about monsters, Think about precisely what in science fiction or horror is called the thing. Think about movies like Alien, these terrifying creatures too strong to be directly confronted, but nonetheless it's imaginary because it's an image which is too strong to be confronted. Even if you cannot confront it, we are still moving at the, the imaginary level. That would be the imaginary real. Then, the symbolic real. It's simply, for example, scientific discourse, scientific formulas, like quantum physics. Why is this real? For a simple reason. The minimum definition of the real for Lacan is that which resists symbolization, inclusion into our universe of meaning. And isn't it that precisely which happens, for example, with quantum physics? What is quantum physics? Formulas which work, experimentally confirmed, and so on and so on, but we cannot translate them into our daily experience of ordinary reality. As we all know, this is what is so traumatic 
about quantum physics. We literally cannot understand it. Not in the sense that we, common people, idiots, cannot understand it. Only a couple of scientists can. Even they cannot. In what sense? In the sense that it just works. But if you try to build a consistent ontology out of it, again, you get meaningless results. You get time running backwards, you get parallel universes or whatever. In other works, you get things which simply are meaningless with regard to our ordinary notion of reality. So this would be symbolic real. Symbolic, obviously it is symbolic, formulas, pure signifiers, they function, it's a functioning machine, but meaningless. We cannot make any sense out, out of it. We cannot relate it to our experience, which is why we try so desperately to do it, which is why we try to invent metaphors to imagine quantum universe, but it cannot be done. Then, finally, we are coming to the real real, which is precisely not what is usually identified as the real. This would have been the first real, the imaginary real, a too traumatic image. What then is this famous real, real, the very core of the real? Let me approach it at two levels. The first level is still relatively close to the symbolic order. It would have been uh, all that accompanies the symbolic level at, as its obscene Shadow. Think about army units, how they function. You have discipline, symbolic machine, symbolic order, drill, and so on. But as we all know, this is sustained by a kind of obscene, shadowy reality of, among other things, so-called marching chants. In every movie about the Marines, you hear them. These songs, which are extremely interesting songs that soldiers sing by their training, marching, because they are characterized by meaningless rhymes combined with sadistic or sexually perverse obscenities. One example that I remember, I think it is from, from An Officer and the Gentleman, the movie where Marines are singing Something like, uh, I don't know, but I was told that Eskimo pussies are rather cold. The, the enigma is, again, why does the military discourse need, need this? So this would be one level, this shadowy virtual reality of affects which has to accompany the official discourse. But let's move a little bit deeper. Let's think about... Well, one of the great achievements of Western civilization, a movie like The Sound of Music. Officially, as we all know, it's a story about uh, small anti-fascist democratic Austrians at the political level, that is to say. I will leave out all the singing aspect. Small, honest democratic Austrians fighting, resisting the Nazi occupation of Austria in 1938. But, but, look at the movie really closely. Look at its texture, and you will discover a quite different reality, a kind of a virtual reality of the officially depicted narrative reality. 
If you look at how Austrians are depicted in the movie, you will discover, to cut a long story short, that they are precisely de depicted as a kind of a smallish, beautiful, provincial fascists. Their idiocy is emphasized as uh, local uh, folkloric dresses and so on. They are presented directly as anti-intellectual, rooted in narrow life world and so on. Now, look at how the occupying, invading Nazis are presented. They are not mostly soldiers, but uh, managers, bureaucrats, exquisitely dressed, with short moustaches, smoking uh, expensive cigarettes and so on. In other words, almost a caricature of cosmopolitan, decadent, corrupted Jew. So, that's my point. At the level of simple narrative reality, we get one message democratic resistance to Nazism. But at the level of, let's call it, virtual texture, all this micro, micro sense, maybe we could even call it writing, we get practically the opposite message, which is honest fascists resisting decadent Jewish cosmopolitan Takeover, And incidentally, maybe this is at least one of the reasons why this movie was so extremely popular. While officially agreeing with our uh, democratic ideology, it at the same time addresses our secret fascist dreams. But let's take a more serious example. Robert Altman masterpiece, Shortcuts. Again, at the narrative level, we get a simple story, or rather, nine, ten stories, parallel stories, depicting desperate everyday life of Los Angeles, LA middle classes. It's a portrait of today's alienation, solitude, uh, and so on. But, Again, the very texture of the film, I claim, is a much more optimistic one. It's a kind of celebration of this magic of uh, contingent encounters generating unexpected effects of meaning. So I think that in a similar way to how we should read Sound of Music, it is wrong to read shortcuts simply as kind of a social critical piece. There is another much more optimistic life-asserting even level. So, to provide the formula of this uh, real virtual, let me refer to a recent paradoxical statement by none other than Donald Rumsfeld. I think that this statement was an important contribution to contemporary American philosophical debate. This happened in March 2003, just before the war on Iraq, where Rumsfeld elaborated the relationship between known and unknown. First he said there are known knowns, there are things we know that we know, like we knew at that point that Saddam was the president of Iraq. Okay, everything clear. Then he went on, there are known unknowns, there are things that we know that we don't know. The idea was, for example, we know that we don't know how many weapons of mass destruction uh, Saddam has. Okay, now we know he had none. Doesn't matter. At that point, it appeared like this. Then, there is 
the unknown unknown, things we don't know that we don't know, things which are so foreign, so unimaginable that we even don't know that we don't know. For example, maybe Saddam had some unimaginable, totally unexpected weapon. And here, unfortunately, Rumsfeld stopped, because I think he should have gone on, making the next step to the fourth category, fourth variation which is missing, which is not the known unknowns, but the unknown knowns, things we don't know, we know them. We know them, they are part of our identity, they determine our activity, but we don't know that we know them. This is what in psychoanalysis, of course, of course is called unconscious, unconscious fantasies, unconscious prejudices, and so on, and so on. And I think that this level is crucial. To refer to previous two examples from movies, in The Sound of Music, what we directly know is that it's a movie about anti-fascist resistance of modest, honest Austrians. What we don't know that we know is that it's also the opposite. That is the movie about fascists resisting the Jewish takeover. And the tragedy of today's American politics, I think, is that precisely they are not aware of these unknown knowns, which is why there was a deep truth in one of the statements of that unfortunate Iraqi Minister of Information. We were all laughing at him during the last Iraqi war because of his ridiculous statements denying the obvious. But, but at one point I claim what he told was absolutely true. When towards the end of the war he was asked, is it true that Americans already control American forces, part of the Baghdad airport, he said, not true, Americans don't control even themselves. Perfect truth. Why? Because they don't know what they know. And this, what you don't know that you know, controls you, but you don't control it. Okay, so now we come to the really real, real core of the real, much more fundamental than this still symbolic real, but which paradoxically is at the same time the most virtual real. It is what? Let us think about attractors in mathematics or in physics. For example, you have small pieces of, uh, of uh, iron and you throw them around a, a magnetic field. They are dispersed following a certain shape, infinitely approaching this shape, but this shape, of course, is not existing it itself. It's just something that you can abstract, isolate from the, from the dispersion of the, of the small pieces of uh, iron. That's the idea of virtual real. It's a shape, this is the real of this field, but it's not, it doesn't exist in itself. It's just an abstract form which structures the disposition of actually existing elements around it. Now, what has this to do with psychoanalytic problematic or even more with political problematic? My idea is a lot. Let's think about the precise status of trauma in psychoanalysis. It is C 
similar to this non-existing attractor. That is to say, more closely, Freud shifted his position, as we all know, with regard to trauma. He shifted his position in, an, in a way which is, strangely enough, parallel to the shift in Einstein's theory of relativity, the shift from, uh, from a special to general theory of relativity. This shift in theory of relativity concerns uh, the reference to the curved space, curvature of space. As most of us, I hope, know, for Einstein, first, in the first approach, it was the presence of the density of matter, of stuff, which curved the space. Space was originally perceived as empty space, abstractly, was symmetrical, non-curved, then the presence of stuff curves it. But then, in a second step, Einstein accomplished a wonderful reversal. He just turned the terms around. It was not the presence of matter, of stuff, which curves the space, it was on the contrary, the curvature of the space which was primordial. And what we perceive as matter is just a kind of a reified fetishist misperception of a purely formal curvature of the space. And I claim it's exactly like this in the psychoanalytic notion of trauma. In the first approach, Freud imagined trauma as some kind of dense, raw presence, presence of some real which brutally intrudes into our symbolic space and curse it, quite literally. Let's imagine that I have my well-balanced symbolic space, then something traumatic happens to me. I'm raped, I witness a terrifying event, I'm tortured, whatever. And because of the traumatic impact of this event, my symbolic space gets curved. Something can no longer be symbolized, the function of those symbols has to be taken over with other symbols. There is a kind of imbalance, there is a gap in my symbolic space. This would be the first approach. But then Freud noticed some strange things. What things? Let's recall his best-known uh, analysis of Wolfman. The traumatic scene there, of course, is the small child, Wolfman, witnessing the parental coitus aterbo. But let's look at it in a much more precise way. What effectively happens there? It's not that this was simply a trauma. As a small, one-year-and-a-half-old child, Wolfman did not find anything traumatic in this scene. He just perceived it and stored it. It was three, four years later when Wolfman started to develop his theories, infantile theories of sexuality, and because he was not able to account for sexuality, in other words, because the symbolic space of his sexual theories was curved, it is only at this point that he resuscitated the traumatic scene. So, I think in clear parallel to Einstein, we can see how here it's the other way around. The primordial fact is not some brutal intrusion of the real, of a traumatic real. The primordial fact, and also the primordial real, is a purely formal imbalance. The, the symbolic space is curved, uh, it's uh, cut across by an antagonism, imbalanced, uh, and so on, and 
to account for this, you need a reference to some real, which is, of course, the real, the real in the sense of the traumatic appearance, it's a lure here, a threat. So what does this notion of the uh, virtual real as trauma, trauma as virtual, what does this notion mean for politics? Can this serve us not to analyze political ideological phenomena? Of course. Let us recall how antisemitism functions. In its fascist version, antisemitism, or rather the figure of the Jew, the Jewish plot, is precisely an external trauma which brutally intrudes, disturbing social balance, curving, as it were, the social space. Society was supposed to be harmonious, balanced, then Jews intervened, distorted. It's, as it were, natural order. But of course, here at least we should be Marxist and turn things around. It's not that there is disorder, antagonism, disintegration, class struggle because of the Jews. Class struggle, or more generally social antagonism, comes first. That is to say, social space is in itself already curved, imbalanced. And in order to imaginarily, in an imaginary way, account for it, we invent the figure of the Jew. That is to say, we project the cause of it into the figure of the Jew. Even at a more fundamental level of today's economic constellation, I think that this notion of real as virtual can help us to critically reject a category which is more and more popular with politically correct post-colonial authors, the notion of so-called alternate or alternative modernity. The idea is, to put it simply, the following one. Of course, there are inconsistencies, antagonisms, repressive potentials in the notion of modernity, which ultimately means, of course, capitalism as the force of modernity. But, so the story goes, this antagonistic, repressive elements are not part of the very concept of modernity, but are only limited to the Anglo-Saxon West European model of modernization. Why then should there not be other alternate modernities where you can have modernization but without these uh, alienating effects which characterize Western European process of modernization, without socially disruptive processes, without alienation, without exploitation, without ecological catastrophes, and so on and so on. And then, of course, it's free for grab. Anybody can have his or their own modernity. You can say we can have then Latin American modernity as alternate modernity, we can have uh, African modernity, we can have Asian modernity, whatever. So what is the problem with this approach, which is basically an approach of historicist nominalism? Because the underlying logic is that in famous uh, pseudo-deconstructionist logic of there is no modernity as such. There are only particular modernities like uh, uh, West European, African, Latin America, and so on and so on. Of course, this is true. The problem is elsewhere. The problem is that through this nominalist reduction, 
again, by claiming that only particular modernities effectively exist, the site of antagonism is reduced to only one particular modernity. It is no longer modernity as such, which is characterized by antagonism imbalance. Imbalance is dismissed as just pertaining to a certain species of particular species of modernity. And what is problematic with this? Well, to put it very simply, did we not have already in the early 20th century, in the first part of the 20th century, one big well-known project of alternate modernity? It was called fascism. Fascism was precisely the first big attempt to build an alternate modernity. That is to say, to have the process of modernization, industrial development, and so on, but without paying the price of alienation, social disintegration, and so on, and so on. What should we then oppose to this model? We should oppose to it the idea that some antagonism, we can call it by different names, Marxists would have called it, traditional Marxists would have called it class struggle, Frankfurt School would have called it uh, dialectic of enlightenment, but the idea being that there is some antagonistic potential in the very project of capitalist modernity. That is to say that all these phenomena that we deplore, wars, violences, concentration camps, new fundamentalism, you name it, that all this is not simply a regression, or as Habermas would have put it, a sign of modernity as an unfinished project, but is part of the very project of modernity. This is what gets lost. Which is why I think that although it wants to be historicist, critical, this idea of reducing the antagonistic aspects of modernity to just one particular form of modernity is deeply ideological, because it saves unblemished the general notion of modernization. What we should insist on is, on the contrary, as I've just said, that there is an antagonism inherent to the very universal notion of modernity, and now coming to my point, so that the particular species of modernity are not just examples or exemplifications of their universal genus, of their universal notion, but they are in a way reactions to it. They fight it. Modernity as a universal notion names a certain deadlock, a certain antagonism, and particular really existing forms of modernity are attempts to resolve this deadlock, to solve the problem. Liberal capitalism, as one form of modernity, wants to solve the deadlock of modernity in a certain way through market freedoms and so on. Fascist modernization in a different way. Latin American modernization in a different way. So what's properly dialectical here? It's against this very reversal of the usual constellation. It's not that struggle is at the level of the particular content, while universal is just some kind of neutral, empty container, so that universal means some encompassing global notion, and then within this notion particular forms struggle, like fascist modernization against liberal modernization, and so on and so on. No, the site of the struggle is universal antagonism itself, and all particular 
actually existing modernisms are attempts to cover up, resolve this problem. So, again, we should remember this, that the site of antagonism is universality. What has have this to do with virtual estrial? Ah, precisely this site of universality as the site of an antagonism is virtual. In what sense? In the sense that there is no universal modernization. It's just a certain virtual constellation of a certain antagonism. All that exists, nominalists are here right, all that effectively exists are just particular forms of modernization. There is no modernity as such. There only is Anglo-Saxon, uh, Latin American, African and so on, fascist modernity. But in order to grasp the very dynamic of these particular forms, one has to refer them to this, their absent cause, to the big antagonism to which they react. So, again, this would have been another example of how the notion of virtual as real is operative, of how it is a necessary notion if we are to grasp the concrete social dynamic, especially of today's global capitalism. So the conclusion to be drawn from all this is that the category of the real is ultimately a purely formal category. It's not a category of some formless content disturbing order. It's a pure structural gap. It's a, an entirely non-substantial category. It's, if we may put it in these terms, it's a difference, but a pure difference. A pure difference in the sense that it's a difference which is paradoxically prior to what it is the difference between. So it's not that we have two terms and there is a difference between the two terms. Paradoxically, the two positive terms appear afterwards as attempts to to dominate, cover up the tension and so on of this difference. Again, how can this be? Another simple example, just to illustrate this logic, the, the political distinction, I know it's half forgotten today, nobody wants to hear about it, but nonetheless, the distinction between left and right. The first thing that strikes the eye about this distinction, if we take it seriously, is that it's not just a distinction within a certain social whole. It's not that in a certain society, if we take into account all political forces, we can say these are right-wing forces, these are left-wing forces, and then all the intermediate phenomena in between center, center-left, center-right, whatever you want. It's different. It is that if you ask a right-winger how is the entire social field structured, you will get a totally different answer than if you ask a left-winger, or for that matter, if you ask a centrist. To simplify it, a right-winger will tell you that society is an organic, harmonious unity, at least the traditional right-winger, and that left radicals are external intruders. What is anathema for radical Conservative is the idea that there is an antagonism, an imbalance inscribed into 
the very heart of the social edifice. For a left-winger, the struggle is admitted as central. So, again, the point is that there is no neutral way to define the difference between left and right. In itself, it's a void. It's just that you can approach it either from the leftist or from the rightist point of view. And incidentally, for Lacan, it's exactly in the same way that also a sexual difference functions. Sexual difference is not a difference between the two species of humanity in general, but it's the within, from the male perspective, sexual difference itself appears in a different way than from the feminine perspective. So, again, difference paradoxically comes first. Crucial philosophically is this, let's call it, pure formalism. And against the reproach that we are dealing here with some kind of idealism isn't matter in its positive inert presence primordial. I think that we should reject this reproach and precisely insist on this notion of, how should I call it, purely formal materialism. Materialism is materialism of the difference. The minimal feature of materialism being that there is a pure difference, that there is a crack, an antagonism in, within the order of the one. That the primordial fact is pure self-difference. I'm very precise here. Self-difference and not any kind of this mythological polar opposites, feminine, masculine, light, darkness, yin, yang, and so on. I think that here radical materialism should be even critical towards Deleuze, Gilles Deleuze, who likes to assert some kind of primordial multitude as the ultimate ontological fact. From the radical perspective that I'm advocating, Multitude already is an effect of the inconsistency of the one with itself, of the fact that the one cannot coincide with itself. Or to put it in a slightly different way, we do not have some primordial polarity like masculine, feminine, light, darkness, and then we can play all these uh, New Age agnostic games of how in our era we put too much accent on one pole and we have to re-establish the balance like we are too rational masculine, let's put more accent on the feminine emotional side, uh, whatever. No, it's more radical. It's as if, as Lacan puts it, the, the binary signifier is primordial repressed, primordially repressed, which means the second element is always missing, and this lack of the counterpoint, we have one, but we don't have the accompanying other. And this original imbalance then sets in motion the generation of multiplicity. Again, an extremely simple example from one of the early movies by Woody Allen, I think it's Love and War, a kind of a parody on Tolstoy, where, again, the whole movie topic uh, uh, focuses on topic of Tolstoy. So, of course, our first enigma is here, where is Dostoevsky, the other natural supplement to Tolstoy. There is no Dostoevsky, so what happens in the movie as a kind of a return of the repressed is that 
in one wonderful short scene when two main characters uh, talk with each other all the big titles of Dostoevsky novels emerge like do you know what happened with that idiot ah you mean the Kar- one of the Karamazov brothers yes he did his crime it was punished then he went underground turned into a gambler and so on and so on so the lesson of this is ontological lesson is one cannot coincide with itself pure difference because of this pure difference as a secondary effect the multitude explodes uh, so again against the usual reproach is this not idealism I would say that today it is rather idealism which is materialist today's opposition I'm tempted to claim between materialism and idealism is that today's idealism or rather spiritualism clings to this famous density, inertia of experience, of matter, of earth, of the stuff. No wonder that the greatest, arguably, spiritual movie director, the Russian Tarkovsky, was at the same time practically obsessed by the topic of inertia of matter, density of matter, matter in decay. In his films, when heroes are praying, they don't pray looking upwards. They pray by sometimes literally immersing their heads into mud, close contact with earth. So I think the thing to do today is to oppose to this kind of spiritual spiritual materialism the pure formalism of true radical materialism, which is why for me quantum physics is ultimately a deeply materialist theory where you don't need any positivity of matter you can do everything with purely formal oscillations and so on so again back to this central insight that difference comes first difference how to think a difference which is prior to the elements it is the difference of Immanuel Kant in his uh, already uh, in his early writings introduces here a crucial distinction a very strange but clear distinction a distinction between uh, negative judgment and indefinite judgment that is to say as Kant puts it it is not the same thing to say you uh, you uh, to say uh, to say uh, uh, you are you aren't human and to say you are inhuman if we, I say you aren't human it simply means you are external to humanity you are animal, divine, whatever it's outside but if I say not if I, as Kant puts it if I do not simply negate a predicate but if I affirm a non-predicate so again, if I don't say simply you aren't human, but if I say you are inhuman, it means non-humanity, an excess over humanity, but an excess which is inherent to humanity itself. To give you another example, which will make it clear, let's just think about Stephen King, horror novels, the well-known category of the undead. We can feel the difference. If I say you aren't dead, it's not the same as saying you are 
I'm dead. If I say you aren't dead, it simply means you are alive. And nothing more, nothing mysterious. But as every reader of horror novels knows, if I say you are undead, it means you are the living dead. You are alive precisely as dead. Immanuel Kant's point is that human freedom has exactly such a status. It's something which is neither nature, animals are not free, they are enslaved to their instincts, nor culture. Culture is already symbolic law, symbolic regulation. But the conclusion to be drawn from Kant and consequently from Freud and Lacan is that what cultural symbolic prohibitions try to regulate, to master, to dominate, to, to, to domesticate, whatever you want, is not directly nature, natural instincts, but is this zero-level inhuman excess to use Lacan's pun, the extimate kernel of humanity. The inhuman dimension in exactly the same sense in which we talk about the undead. Not inhuman as external to humanity, but a monstrous excess or some radical wild freedom which is inherent to humanity itself. Again, so again we have this paradox that the difference between nature and culture is a level of its own, is neither nature nor culture, it's some kind of crazy excess. So what would then a politics of pure difference be? Well, first, per negationem, what it would not be. It would definitely not be what emerges today more and more as the ultimate horizon of the political, the so-called uh, identity politics, or more broadly, the politics of recognizing the differences, of tolerating differences. Uh, what is for me problematic in this multiculturalist, tolerant politics and so on, it's not just the vulgar fact that they effectively, even if they deny it, neglect economic struggle, it's the very logic of the struggle, the logic of multiculturalist struggle, of anti-racist struggle, of sexist struggle, uh, struggle against sexism, is again the logic of recognizing differences. For example, in anti-sexist struggle, the goal of course is not even for radical feminists, I don't know, to kill, to annihilate men, it's to establish an open field within which both sexes, all different sexual positions, sexual identities, cultural identities inclusive, will be allowed to thrive freely, so that one will not articulate itself at the expense of others. Again, again in the anti-racist struggle, the ultimate horizon is that of opening up the space for differences. It's ethnic group, religious group, cultural group, way of life group should have the freedom to freely deploy, articulate its potentials, its position. But this conceptual field, the field of openness towards the other, of tolerating, allowing for differences as the ultimate ethical horizon, this, I claim, should not cannot be our ultimate horizon, because we can immediately see that, to use the simplified example, class struggle, 
My God, the, the ultimate goal of the class struggle is not for proletarians to allow the bourgeois and bourgeois to allow proletarians to freely deploy their own, uh, their own potentials and so on and so on. It's an antagonistic struggle. The goal is not to let the, the multitude be. The goal is to annihilate the enemy. It's, an, it, it's a totally different logic. It's the logic of animosity. It's the logic of antagonistic struggle, which also involves a totally different notion of universality. The notion of universality here is no longer universality as the encompassing medium container of the plurality of uh, positions, sexual positions, cultural positions, whatever. No, universality is here the universality of struggle itself. There is also a central paradox to this struggling position. The position of struggle does not mean uh, the position of a particular identity and the abandonment of the universal notion of truth. The abandonment of universal notion of truth goes very well with multiculturalist politics, where you can say everybody has the right to narrate its own version of truth, there is no global truth. No, our position should be there is universal truth. There always is one universal truth of a certain situation. But this truth is accessible only from a specific partial engaged, engaged in the struggle standpoint. So it's not that we arrive at the universal truth by abstracting from our particular engagement, from our particular interests, the idea being each of us has its own interests, uh, positions, but the truth of a situation emerges when we can step, as it were, outside ourselves and look at the situation more objectively the way it really is. No, on the contrary, we should fully assume the paradox of universal truth being accessible only through a partial engaged position. This, I think, is more precious than ever to maintain today. And this is the reason why, at the social level, I think, we should cling to the notion of collective as it was still now practiced in three forms. Messianic religious collectives, revolutionary parties, and psychonitic communities. They both share, sorry, all three of them, they share precisely this same notion of universality accessible only through an engaged, struggling, subjective position. This politics of pure difference is opposed today by another, I would call it, politics of the real, but the real of the superego in precisely the sense I already talked about, that is to say, superego injunction, the obscene virtual superego injunction to enjoy. So how does this superego injunction function today in the hegemonic mode of, uh, of, of social identification? To put it in extremely simplified terms, the old functioning of ethics was that of moderation. The ultimate task of ethics was to moderate it, like do it but not excessively, 
eat, drink, not too much, sex, not too much. It was the ethics of the proper measure. Today, I claim a different kind of ethics is emerging. An ethics which, on the one hand, allows you limitless consumption, no moderation, go to the end, but why? Because the object in itself is already deprived of its dangerous substance, as it were. The whole series of products that we find today on the market, decaf coffee, beer without alcohol, uh, 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 sugar without sugar, and so on and so on. That is to say, the product where you get the effect, but deprived of its potentially dangerous substance. So that today, the injunction is no longer drink coffee, but moderately, it is have as much coffee as you want, because coffee is already in itself decaffeinated coffee. Maybe the best, slightly tasteless, but what the hell, why not, the best metaphor for this product is something that I saw two, three years ago in Los Angeles. It's the paradox of a chocolate laxative. Of course, chocolate being that which gives you constipation. With the publicity, I remember it, still constipated, not a problem, eat more of our chocolate. So that's the paradox, that the chocolate is already its own remedy, in a kind of almost Hegelian direct coincidence of the, of the opposites. So why is this interesting? Precisely because I claim it's not limited only to phenomena of commodities. What interests me is how we can locate the same logic, also the same paradoxical logic of um, a product being its own counter-effect already and also at, within the social field. For example, let's take the big topic of tolerance. What does it mean? I claim it has precisely the structure of chocolate laxative. That is to say, tolerance is a mode of appearance of its own opposite, of intolerance. Because what does it mean, tolerance, today? It means tolerate the differences, which again means don't harass me. Tolerance means tolerate me, means don't harass me. What does it mean, don't harass me? It means precisely don't come too close to me. If you come too close to me with your excessive enjoyment, you disturb me, you harass me. So we have then this idea that practically everything can be a form of harassment. I look at you, it's potentially sexual harassment. I speak too loudly, it's verbal harassment, whatever. Everything, every over-proximity of another human being can be potentially a form of harassment. And I think that this fear of harassment is precisely fundamental form of intolerance today. And so, again, I claim that when we talk about Tolerance today means it means precisely tol uh, tolerance as avoiding harassment, which means intolerance. It means let's tolerate each other again, which means let's keep from each at a proper distance from each other. Yet another chocolate laxative phenomenon is it the way we deal with wealth today. The exemplary figure today for me here is somebody like George Soros. Half the day he engages in the most ruthless financial 
exploitations ruining the lives of hundreds of thousands, even millions. The other half, he just gives part of it back. So the morning is chocolate, the afternoon is laxative, like, you know, involving all these human aid programs and so on, political democratization and so on and so on. So again, instead of simply not engaged in ruthless speculation, he does it but then includes counteraction. And even more radically, is it not exactly the same with war today? I think that uh, Ulrich Beck, the German sociologist, was well justified in inventing the term, uh, the term uh, militarist pacifism or, human, or uh, uh, humanitarian militarism. For what goes on today where all the wars are declared as wars for peace. It's not only that their ultimate goal is defined as to bring peace into Iraq to remove the threat of war and so on and so on. It's even more radically. It, it is that the war operation itself resembles more and more a kind of humanitarian intervention to help the people there. If you read, for example, the recent justification of attack on Iraq, it's not so much that Iraq was attacked in order to remove the threat to the Western nation of Saddam. It was in, er in order to help the Iraqi people and so on and so on. No wonder then that the ultimate chocolate laxative, no wonder that uh, the concentration camps, the, the, as George Agamben claims, the typical exemplary case of a 20th century collective, has precisely these both aspects, again, chocolate laxative structure, the aspect of isolating the enemy, Guantanamo or whatever, and the aspect of concentrating people for, in order to give them, to provide them with humanitarian aid. Uh, so, what this means are two things. First, I don't think that it is justified to talk today about Consumption. We live in a society of consumption and so on. On the contrary, I claim, we consume less than ever, if consuming means taking the risk, really opening yourself. Which is why, incidentally, we are so afraid of, of uh, smoking. I claim it's not simply medical results and so on. What is so terrifying in smoking is somebody really consuming the smoke with all the dangers this involves. I think that the true consumers today are drug addicts, chain smokers and so on. And they are the figures of horror today, if anything. Again, the structure is that of chocolate laxative, which is why we are all looking, even at this level, for products which would be already a kind of decaf coffee. Which is why I think marijuana is so popular, because it's kind of decaf opium, de facto. No opium without opium. You can have it, but deprived of its uh, dangerous substance. So, to conclude this brief reflection, I would say that uh, today the fundamental, as it were, ethical injunction, the injunction society bombards us with, is no longer the injunction to control yourself, to repress your strivings or whatever. It's on the contrary, the injunction to enjoy it to go to the end, this is what we feel guilty about today. And this, I think, also changes fundamentally the role of psychoanalysis. It does not make it outdated, it's more actual than ever.
only its, its function fundamentally changed. In the good old days, or so it appeared, now it's clear that it never was simply like that, the idea was the following one. Let's say you are sexually frustrated because you internalized some uh, paternal or other prohibitions, you cannot enjoy sex, and the function of psychoanalysis is to, to uh, relieve you, release you of the pressure of this uh, internalized prohibition so you can let yourself go, you can enjoy. And in, in other words, you feel guilty if you transgress social prohibitions in order to enjoy. Today, it's almost the opposite. You feel guilty if you cannot make it, if you cannot enjoy. And we shouldn't take here enjoyment just in the immediate sense of sex, sexual pleasure, of drinking, whatever. It can be uh, enjoyment of power, social success, professional success. It can be even spiritual enjoyment in the New Age sense, Gnostic sense of realizing your ego and so on and so on. What we are... Uh, Getting today is that you feel guilty if, in this sense, you cannot enjoy yourself. So, this brings us, I claim, to a double function of psychoanalysis today. A. Its message is not relax, get rid of prohibitions. Its message is, as Alain Badiou put it in wonderful terms, you should learn to become a pitiless censor of yourself. The role of psychoanalysis today, it's not to enable you to enjoy, but to open up a space in which you are allowed not to enjoy. That's the fundamental message of psychoanalysis today. You are not obliged to enjoy. You are allowed not to enjoy. Which, of course, it's not the same as saying you are prohibited to enjoy. Just you are allowed not to enjoy. This confronts us furthermore with the paradoxes of today's superego, which is how, on the one hand, permissivity ends up in its opposite. Like today, the injunction is enjoy, the result is more prohibitions, regulations than ever. You can enjoy yourself, but in order to enjoy yourself properly, you are ordered to what? Not to eat too much, to engage in jogging, to, to take care of your fitness, not to smoke, uh, and so on, and so on. Just look around, and I think there is nothing more miserable today than those younger couples or people who organize their life in order to enjoy themselves. The regulation is total. On the other hand, we have the opposite paradox, which is that the so-called newly emerging fundamentalism is not here in order to introduce some new stability to give you firm ethical foundation in today's world where there are no firm stable values and so on, but on the contrary, I claim it is here to open up a, a kind of a false space of freedom. I'm referring here, of course, implicitly to Lacan's famous reversal of the Dostoevsky motto. According to Lacan, it is not that if God doesn't exist, everything is permitted, but if God doesn't exist, everything is prohibited. This is the lesson of the hedonistic Yapis. And the opposite lesson, no less crucial, if God exists, then everything is permitted. Which means, if you can justify your role, as that of 
being the instrument of the divine will. In other words, you hear voices, you have the contact with the guy up there, either George Bush or Osama Bin Laden. As many people notice, this is what they have in common. They both hear directly from up there. Then you can do whatever you want. You can do terrorist acts, bomb countries, and so on and so on. So, here we see how difficult it is to orient ourselves in today's constellation where there is a certain urge to false freedom inherent to the system itself. Which is why I claim the main task today is to reinvent utopia, a space of utopia. What do I mean by this? It's not, of course, the old-fashioned utopia, which is the utopia of imagining ideal world about which we know in advance that it will never be realized. The big models here are, of course, Plato's Republic, Thomas More Utopia, and, we should not forget, Marquis de Sade uh, uh, philosophy in the boudoir. That's the classical utopia. Then we have what I'm tempted to call the capitalist utopia. This unbridled solicitation of new and new desires, which can go pretty far. Like today, I learned that in the United States, they are in some communities seriously considering the idea that uh, necrophiliacs, those who want to play sexual games with corpses, dead bodies, are seriously deprived. So isn't it the duty of our society to provide them with corpses? Can it be done in some way so that people sign voluntarily in the same way that you sign that, that if you die, your heart, your organs can be used, that your body can be used to be delivered to necrophiliacs, and so on and so on. The problem here is that, radical as this may appear, there is something ridiculously benign about it about this capitalist utopia. You can go to the end, basically nothing happens. But we have a third utopia, which is again neither this classical utopia of imagining an alternative universe, not even dreaming about really realizing it, then the capitalist utopia of ever new desires, extreme forms of satisfying your desires. There is a third mode which I would say is precisely the real, the the real core of utopia. I think a truly radical utopia is not an exercise in free imagination. Like you sit down, don't have anything wiser to do than to imagine possible ideal worlds. It's something that you do literally as out of an inner urge. You have to invent something new when you cannot do it otherwise. True utopia for me is not a matter of the future, it's something to be immediately enacted when there is no other way. Utopia in this sense simply means do what appears within the given symbolic coordinates as impossible. Take the risk, change the very coordinates. And I'm not talking here about something crazy. Even big classical, well-known, even sometimes conservative acts have this utopian dimension, like to take a ridiculous example. Uh, uh, 30 years ago, remember Richard Nixon's trip to China. There was almost a utopian dimension to it. Why? Because he did what appeared as impossible. China was portrayed as the ultimate evil superpower with Soviet Union. There was the tent, not with China. That act changed the entire coordinates. It did the impossible. 
This is what we need more than ever today. Because ultimately, I claim, the true utopia today is not a different order. It's the idea that the existing order can function indefinitely. The true utopia, I claim, was not communism which disintegrated in 89. It was the utopia of the 90s, the idea elaborated among others by Francis Fukuyama that we discovered the final social form, liberal capitalist democracy, that we cannot go further. It is just a question of making it a little bit more tolerant, spread it all around the world, but that we have the formula. And I think that if there is a symbolic meaning to September 11th, is that the time of death Utopia is over. The real of history is dead. Which is why today the urge is not to be terrorized by the so-called post-political politics, which tells us ideological times are over, all you can do is just to play the realistic game of accepting uh, the trends and so on and so on. We should dare to enact the impossible. We should rediscover how to, how to not imagine but enact utopia. The point is not again about planning utopias. The, the point is about practicing them. And I think this is not a question of, uh, of uh, should we do it or should we simply persist in the, in the existing order. It's much more radical. It's a matter for survival. The future will be utopian or there will be none.